This Thanksgiving weekend, we spent time down in Redmond at uh, Corey's family, and as per our custom, we participated in a 5K, like, turkey trot thing, and I don't know why we do that on Thanksgiving morning. Um, some people in our family think it's fun to run in 26 degrees. Uh, others just try and make some room for more turkey. You try try and guess which one is which. Um, uh, this turkey trot that we did was designed to raise money for uh, Children's Hospital, and it was up in the hills of this kind of affluent neighborhood by a beautiful school and golf course. And by all appearance, the runners were, uh, you know, pretty much all the types of people who uh, had lots to be thankful for, judging by the cars that were pulling up and things like that. Um, But not long after we crossed the finish line, something tainted the feel-good vibe of the morning. There was a man and a woman off to the side of the racetrack who were just going at it like, I'm not talking romantically, like they were arguing, uh, yelling at each other. Apparently, my kids informed me um, that the, the man had been running with his young son and a group of boys passed them and clipped this young son. I don't know that he actually fell down or anything, but he was pretty angry and so he ran ahead and apparently made contact with one of these uh, groups of hooligans, and uh, Mama Bear heard about this altercation and confronted the guy. Now, what was impressive or depressing, depending on your viewpoint, is that they were going at it for like 15 minutes, and then we got in our car, and then we started driving away, and they're still going at it, and Golden Retriever guy, a third party, comes up, and he's trying to you know, calm everything down, and then they turned on him as we were driving by, so like, blessed are the peacemakers, right? Now, I bring this story up because it clearly illustrates the type of existence that most of us experience in the world. We are surrounded by beauty and abundance of wood and water and crops, and I know Settlers fans are thinking I'm going to say or, but I'm not... You know, just like all of this natural beauty and good things, we're, we're surrounded by abundance. And at the same time, we're nagged by the reality that things are not quite as they ought to be. Not yet, right? Like we have all this natural beauty in the Pacific Northwest, but we tire, we never tire at figuring out new ways how to pollute it, right? Uh, we, have, we have the sacred gift and joy of forming meaningful relationships, but these relationships that we have seems so fragile. Like just the, the, the role of an eye or a wayward comment or a, a misgiving body language, dismissiveness, and we chip away at this beautiful gift of relationships, of knowing and being known. We live in these enfleshed, incredible biomechanical machines, brains that are more, more powerful than a supercomputer, billions of cells working in unison to give freedom of movement, capability of performing infes- uh, impressive feats of strength or the most graceful dance moves or the most finite motor skills. And yet, who hasn't been troubled by their body at some time? Maybe it's troubled body image. We just cannot accept how we look, how we think we look to other people. And certainly the more and more that we age, the more and more our bodies let us down. And with these brilliant brains that we have, these amazing supercomputers on top of our shoulders, who hasn't been let down by forgetting that useful piece of information right when you needed it the most, right? Our existence is one of constant tension between tastes of pure goodness 
and glory and the nagging reminders that in this world, the way it currently is, this is not our final home. It's not our final hope. We are Advent people. Advent might only be a few weeks leading up to Christmas, but it resonates because it deals so honestly with our current situation. It is the season that recognizes the in-betweenness of the time that we fill with our lives. Advent is a word derived from the Latin that means literally coming or anticipation. And it's the season where we anticipate the first coming of Jesus on Christmas Day. And during Advent, we retell the story of the prophets who foretold the great coming of the rescuer who would deliver us from sin and death. We read passages in the the New Testament about Jesus' birth and the Annunciation and the angels singing and all of this amazing stuff of God coming in the flesh to rescue us. And so Advent is a season of anticipating the arrival of God, our Savior, in Jesus the Christ. And yet, Advent also points to something much more. It's a season of more than just joy and feasting. Its colors are purple, as if nodding to the fact that the world is bruised by sin and death and brokenness. Brokenness in our relationships, brokenness in our leadership in the world. And while our our culture encourages us to keep shopping, consuming in an effort to distract us, or, or, or pushes nostalgia as a way to just make us feel good for short periods of time. Advent says, no, that's not real. Don't try and mask your anxieties or your sickness. Advent says, bring it on. Bring on your fears, bring on your sickness, bring on your pain and your loss. Bring it all because that is what is real in our lives. These are not the things that Jesus' people run from. They're the things that we place before his feet. Pain and suffering, these are things that Jesus' people believe are real and have also a real end, amen? They are real, but our faith in the Lord says they will have a real end. And not just an end, because if we just believe all the pain and suffering will end, that's just nihilism, and there's lots of other places you can get that than here. We also believe that there's a new beginning coming, a new kingdom, a new creation where all things will be set right and where the world we live in will be made new into a way of shalom, of all-encompassing peace. Advent is the season that anticipates the coming of Jesus who will bring his kingdom in its fullness. And so that makes us Advent people. No, I don't know about you, but as I was writing those words and thinking through this in my mind, that resonates with me. I'm an in-betweener, in between just every single day it feels like I experience joys and lows and, and, and victories and failures, right? That, that's, that's what being an Advent person is. And so while that idea of being an Advent person resonates with me, I, I also know the reality of how hard it is for me and most of the people I know to stay on the journey, to be faithful on the journey. It's hard to live day in and day out with a robust hope when we're plagued by pain and suffering, let alone our own sin and weakness. And thankfully, we're not the first people to travel this road. The apostles of Jesus also lived in a world in between the times, still stinging from the fact that their Lord and friend Jesus had died risen and ascended into heaven, they found themselves rejoicing in the fact 
that Jesus had come and had rescued and had turned their lives around, but they were also longing for his return. These followers of Jesus have given us so much, including some fantastic guidance on how not only to survive, but to thrive as we live in between these two advents. In particular, the apostles repeatedly focused on four central practices or attitudes that will help us on our journey. And so over the next four Sundays, including this one, the Sundays of Advent, we're going to cover a different apostolic attitude, and this week, we're going to start with the attitude or the posture of thanksgiving. Now, there are so many places in the apostolic writings that speak to the importance of thanksgiving in the life of a follower of Jesus. So it was hard for me just to choose one, but one passage that has intrigued me, and I just frankly, it's selfish, I just wanted to study it more, uh, was 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Timothy is Paul's apprentice, who is helping him lead the church in Ephesus, which, of course, is in present-day Turkey. Uh, Paul was making visits to each of the churches he had planted, and he was encouraging them on these visits, and he had heard that some Ephesian believers were beginning to teach false doctrines and were leading people astray. So 1 Timothy is a letter from Paul to his protege Timothy, uh, both on how to survive as a young leader and how to handle some of the messes rising up among the Ephesian Christians. After all, like us, they're living in between the times, trying to figure out how to be faithful Jesus people in the midst of context of culture. They're people trying to figure out how to do life in the complexity They lived a long time ago, but they were not so different when you consider that all of us are influenced by our context, the systems of beliefs around us, philosophies, religions, ethics, and ethos of friends and neighbors. And with that in mind, let's take a look at 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. The Spirit clearly says, that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Lord, we pray as we take a look at this passage and the theme of thanksgiving that it centers on, Lord, that you you would show us how to be encouraged by the gifts that you've so abundantly given us. Lord, help us to Lift our eyes off of the things that we don't have and to the abundance that we do have. Help us to um, lift our eyes past our doubts and our fears and to place them firmly on Jesus, who is our hope and our provider. Amen. It's amazing how many different ways our faith can go sideways. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, for example, he's correcting this church 
teaching people that in order, you know, so the, the church in Galatians, or Galatia is teaching people that in order to be good Christian believers, they've got to get back to following the Jewish laws and customs on top of all the things that Jesus had done. And Paul says, no, Christ has died to give you freedom from the law. So that's one way you can fall off the wagon is getting overly legalistic, going back to all these Jewish laws, right? But then in his letter to the Corinthians, an entirely different cultural setting, he's correcting a church that is playing not too legalistic, but too fast and loose with sexuality and gluttony and overindulgence. And to them, his message is, hey, Christ has given you all this freedom, but the freedom is for serving each other. The freedom is for serving the Lord, not to to get caught up in all of these addictions. Don't become a slave to the things that Christ has set you free from. And in this letter, 1 Timothy, Paul is addressing a heresy among the Ephesian church in which some people were teaching that people should abstain from sex even within marriage and that they should abstain from certain types of foods. Paul lists these two examples of abstinence, but they undoubtedly imply more codes of conduct uh, more codes of conduct um, that, that abs- than abstinence uh, from just sex or certain foods, but all kinds of other things. And, and, and it's the idea that harshness to the human body will make a person more holy. It, it was a common form of asceticism, particularly uh, common in, in Greek thinking, ancient Greek thinking, and later among Gnostic thinkers. And, and Paul begins by telling Timothy not to worry Hey, this is the kind of stuff that happens when we take our eye off the proverbial ball. People losing their faith shouldn't surprise us. And these types of teachings, these kind of crooked, sideways, weird teachings that crop up in churches, hey, you know, hey, Timothy, look what they're doing in Corinth and what they're doing in Galatia. Like, don't be surprised that weird stuff's going on in Ephesus. But I gotta tell you what surprised me as I was reading this passage is that Paul calls these teachers diabolical. They're demonic in the sense that they're teaching demonic doctrine, the philosophy of the evil one, if you will. Now, now just sit with that for a moment. Paul calls these teachers demonic or demonically influenced. With that kind of hardcore designation, wouldn't you expect these teachers to be advocating something like ritual killings or occult practices or rooting for the Portland Timbers or something crazy evil like that? But no, what these hypocritical, demonic teachers are pushing on the church is this, not enjoying the good things that God gives us. If that sounds a little weird, it's because we've been influenced by those kinds of teachings too. Somewhere along the line, someone has told us that we've got to be harder on ourselves. Someone has told you you should be ashamed for enjoying this or enjoying that good gift of God. Now, why is this such a big deal? Why is Paul so bent out of shape about some misguided teachings on sex and marriage and food? I mean, on the surface, it sounds like something that could be corrected with a good old seminar that the church leadership goes to, and then, you know, just like, oh, we'll straighten out your theology, and it will be all better. It's a big deal 
because this is exactly the type of way the evil one often works, in subtlety and in angles, pretending to be an angel of light, saying things like, if you really love God, you'll do more for him. If you really love Jesus, not like a regular Christian, but if you really love him, you'll work harder. All of this fun stuff, all of these joys, they're all distractions. And all you sevens are like, what? It's all about joy. Sorry, Enneagram stuff going on there. If you really want to honor the Lord, you'll cut out all the excesses and keep your nose to the grindstone. That's a trap I fall into. Those words sound like truth, but for the nagging in my heart, and plus the Bible says they're not true. A few weeks ago, Corey and I had a weekend getaway, just the two of us. We know some people that have a place on Snoqualmie Pass. They let us stay there. It was awesome. And we found out about this event at the Alpine Center on the pass. Um, and so we go into the Alpine Center, into this little museum. Many of you have probably been there. It's this tiny little museum. And um, there was just, it was packed wall to wall with like three and four generations of skiers there. Uh, Warren Miller's son was there, if anyone know the Warren Miller films. Um, there were guys there in their 80s and 90s, women in their 80s and 90s, some of the pioneers of the Pacific Northwest skiing. It was, it was amazing. And there was this famous mountaineer there from Canada who was telling awesome stories of backcountry skiing and, and sharing the legacy across the generations. And he made a case for enjoying the mountains as a way of combating global warming and encouraging environmental stewardship. I'll say that again. He made a strong case for enjoying the mountains as a way of combating global warming and encouraging environmental stewardship. His theory is this. If we get more people into the backcountry, more people enjoying the pleasure and pure beauty of the mountains, then you'll have more people caring about these beautiful and delicate ecosystems, more people understanding the nature and the balance and, and the animals that live there. And as I listened to his talk, the truth of it hit me, People love the things they love, don't we? We love the things we love. I know that sounds like the stupidest thing you've ever heard, but it is true. We'll just follow it out. You do what you love, and those of you who don't do what you love, you're not very happy. You care about what you love. You invest your life in a perfect world in the things that you love doing. So if you love the mountains, you're going to care for them. If you like snow on the mountains, you're going to advocate for policies that steward the mountains and the climate well. You'll make sacrifices in one area to enjoy the joys and benefits and rewards in another area. Paul sees these false teachers, and he knows what they're doing, and he knows that if you follow their path, and you cut out the things that you love, that you'll have less of a living connection with the one who gives you the things that you love. Notice that of these false teachers, he says that their consciences are seared as with a hot iron. When you sear part of your body, it cauterizes it. And after the pain goes away, it becomes dead feeling, it becomes hard, it becomes numb. These teachers have had their brains cauterized. 
They're headed down a path where they couldn't experience joy and goodness, and they're advocating this road of asceticism, a denial of God's good world. Have you ever met a grumper (laughs) about the world, and they just want to make everybody else miserable too? (laughs) So Paul condemns their teaching, and, and first he argues that they're wrong, and he does that by, by actually drawing on the scriptures. And he goes right back to the beginning, like, I'm not messing around. I'm not going to talk about this stuff that I heard personally from Jesus. I'm going to go right back to the foundation of Genesis 1. These Ephesian heretics were drawing on the type of Greek thinking that denies the value of the physical world. And so Paul says, uh-uh, that doesn't fly. Because the God we worship created the physical world. And in the very first chapter of the Bible, he made all the stuff, and he calls it all very good. Marriage, and sex, and food, and wine, and singleness, and deep friendships, and vocation, and labor, and rest, and play, all of it created by God, and all of it very, very good. So don't come in here, he's saying, claiming to be a follower of that God and saying that things God created aren't good. What makes these Ephesian false teachers diabolical is that they're claiming that the things that God made are not good. And they're troubling new believers by trying to take their joy away, joy that God has given them. Now, C.S. Lewis was a brilliant thinker, and one of his most insightful books was The Screwtape Letters. I know a lot of you like that book. Uh, in this book, if you've not read it or not familiar with it, um, it's about this uh, Uncle Screwtape, who is a senior-level uh, demon. He's high up. He's close to the evil one. And he's got this protege, uh, Wormwood. And Uncle Screwtape gives guidance to Wormwood, instructing him on how best to deceive his human, his patient, um, so that the human will not have faith in God. In one fantastic paragraph, Uncle Screwtape gives a biting critique of Wormwood, and this is what he says. And now for your blunders. On your own showing, you first of all allowed the patient to read a book that he really enjoyed because he enjoyed it, and not in order to make smart remarks to his friends about having read a good book. In the second place, you allowed him to walk down to the old mill and have tea there, a walk through country he really likes. In other words, you allowed him two real positive pleasures. Were you so ignorant and not to see the danger in this? The characteristic of pleasure and pain is that they're so unmistakably real and therefore, as far as they go, give the man who feels them a touchstone to reality. The demonic way is to numb our feelings, to take away too much pleasure and to take away too much pain because reality is where we'll have a greater chance to encounter the real one, the living God. God has given us incredible gifts in the created order, but just recognizing that creation is good and that it is right to be enjoyed, that's not enough. We all know too well that we can become inordinately attached to good things. And when we become overly dependent or overly indulgent on the good things that God has made, they can turn into 
slave masters over us. We can become addicted to those things. And that's why Paul's second imperative in this passage is so vital to a living faith. If the first step is recognizing that creation is good because it comes from God, the second and equally important step is to recognize that God not only made it, but that he gave it as a gift, and that should lead us to thanksgiving, to being grateful. So C.S. Lewis, same guy who wrote the screw tape letters, right, didn't always have a living faith in Jesus. And as a young boy, his mother died uh, tragically. His life was very difficult emotionally, and his experiences in boarding school as a young boy, uh, I would not wish on anyone. And by the time he became a follower of Jesus, he came to recognize experiences that he had had intermittently throughout his whole life, even in his struggling years. And he called them stabs of joy, moments of pure gift, beauty, and joy and peace. And Lewis came to see these stabs of joy as way markers to what will one day in the new creation be normative. We live in a world between advents, and there's a war going on all the time for your focus, for our allegiance, for our courage and resolve. And it's easy to look around us and inside us and to despair, to see death and injustice and lies and deception and to assume that this is all there is and that you and I are really quite alone and none of this is going anywhere. But that doesn't take into account the simple joys of life. And when we pause to give thanks, it shows us that there is so much to be thankful for, that God is good, and that his provenient grace is lavish and generous. John Stott quotes G.K. Chesterton, two great guys, um, and Chesterton just nails it. He says, you say grace before meals. Great but I say grace before the play and before the opera and grace before the concert and the pantomime and grace before I open a book and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. What everyday things might you and I learn to say grace before we do? The basic things of life that are gift and beauty and joy, gifts from God. It's a subtle shift to learn to say thank you to that provider than just consuming and being entitled. Thanksgiving helps us identify joys and gifts that can encourage us for this long journey between the advents. In Christian thanksgiving, I, I want to make a little distinction there between just thanksgiving and Christian thanksgiving. See, Christian thanksgiving is not just a feeling of thankfulness, it's thankfulness to God. Christian thanksgiving is life-giving because it connects the circle, the relationship loop, I like to call it. It brings us back to the source of the good Father who cares for his creation, who provides all good things. It helps us with our posture, moving us from a mindset of entitlement to a mindset of recipient, of a gift. 
from earners to receivers from a gracious father. If you feel ashamed about giving thanks to God for something that you enjoy in your life, it might be a sign that there is some deeper work to be done in your soul. Either you're in need of some deep inner healing to help you break free of a shame cycle, that God really wants you to enjoy life and his good creation. So maybe you need, you need some freedom from, uh, from a shame cycle that you're in. Or maybe if you continually are ashamed about an activity that you're involved in, maybe there's something not praiseworthy in it. And maybe that's a conviction that you need to wrestle with. Finally, Paul says that the good things of God are sanctified by the word and by prayer. Sanctified. Hageatsethai. It's in the middle voice. Oh gosh, I'm ending with grammar. I know. Okay, so. Brian can catch. Okay, so. I'm going to toss the water bottle to Brian. That was active. I tossed. I received. That's passive. Those are basic concepts, right? Active, I do. Passive, I receive. Those are the two most common forms of words in the New Testament and in English. And in English, we don't really have a middle voice. But in classic Greek, in some of Koine, there's a middle voice which gives two players, two participants, an activity to do together. So check this out. All good things are sanctified, made holy. That's what that word means. Set apart, made holy. So let me read it again. All good things are made holy by God. That's his part. All of creation is set apart and made holy. That's just a fact. That's just a fact. But the middle voice opens an opportunity for another player, for us in this case, okay? So All creation is de facto good and holy because it's God's creation, but it is made holy for you and made holy for me when we consider who it's from and we receive it with gratitude and we close that relationship loop and give thanks. When we thank the creator, we take an object, something created, and transform it into a gift. That's what that word in the middle voice encourages us to do. To not just be consumers or takers of good things, but people who give thanks for them and foster and build a relationship with the giver of these gifts. As you experience the tension of living in between the birth of Jesus and his glorious return, what might you give thanks for? What stabs of joy, experiences of beauty, previews of glory, or moments of transcendence might you come to see as Jesus' way of encouraging you and sustaining you on the journey? My prayer is that you and I would have our spiritual eyes open, our ears open, our feelings open to those things this Advent season. Would you pray with me? Lord, I know that so many of us are weary in this season while um, it's supposed to be joyful 
kind of amplifies the weariness. Many, many people are busier than we usually are this time of year. More worn thin. Emotionally spent, physically spent. And I thank you that we are praying to one who understands human frailty, that you yourself were incarnate, you are are in flesh, that you understand exactly what it means to be tired and weary and frustrated. Thank you for getting us. And I also thank you that you provide so many blessings along the way, ways of encouraging us, gifts everywhere if we're willing to see them and receive them as gifts. Won't you open our eyes, Lord, our ears, our emotions, our hearts to seeing the good, good gifts of God and creation as just that, good gifts. And help us to learn to be thankful, not just in general, but to you, Lord, as the giver of all good things. I pray you would fill us with hope and that we would be bearers of hope in our world that desperately needs more hope, that desperately needs you, Lord Jesus. Amen.